we go. Hello. Hello. La, la, la. Yeah. Hi, all. Welcome. It is Monday night, generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And there's been a lot of Seinfeld clips being referred to me on YouTube now. Interesting. uh, The one about George uh, asking Jerry if uh, the girl he's dating likes him. He's like, she doesn't like you. I tried so hard. I don't, I, I don't know which one that's from. Yeah, I know. Those kinds of references kind of just come out of the field. Yeah. You know. So it's uh, been, it's, uh, I feel like I haven't been here in a while. Uh, well, no. Is this your first time back in the it studio? Is. Well, no. I was here Thursday night with the Gen Z Report but kids, you here but on I Wednesday. wasn't here here. I was there. That's right. Not here here, but there. I was there. Hi, Hi Mario. Yeah, we have nobody watching so I know. Far, we're so kind we're, of sad. Yeah. Uh, we're small but mighty. So we yet once again got canceled on by our new leader of our state party. Yeah, that happens, but you just have to accept it. I, I do. I do accept it, but it is noted. It mm-hmm. is. It's noted that you cancel the day of two times. That's noted. I'm just saying. Well, it's not, it's not very inspired to me. No, but the, well, why don't you tell the audience about what you experienced this evening? and what we have going on. Yeah. Uh, double K. Hey, double Great K. to see you. So tonight I actually ventured out into the world of the Dem Clubs again, which I really, it's not something I really like to do, but I actually went to the Weston Dem Club because there was an opportunity to hear both candidates that are running for Broward um, committee man, committee cha- not chair, committee man position um, who represents Broward to the state party. And so we got to hear from the two people that are doing that. Um, we've obviously talked that we, you know, we support Andy Mattis because we really think that um, not just his energy and his like, he really wants to go get him. Like he's really definitely someone who wants to bring things um, back to when Democrats and labor kind of were together, which that so works. it makes sense to have somebody from labor in that position um, and a proven track record of organizing also helps. But um, so I appreciated that opportunity to hear them both. but. Uh, yeah, it was, the, I was, other than one of the two candidates running for that position, I was the youngest person in the room. Well, and that, and that to me speaks volumes. And this is just the Weston Dem Club, but it could be any Dem Club. It could be anywhere. It could be our DEC. It could be, it could honestly, it could be the state party for, and, and you'll see probably more walkers than people. But I think it's a reflection of how much the party is in trouble right now. And there's sort of this ignorance about, well, you know, we have to get behind Joe and everything is okay. And no, everything is not okay. No. Everything is in serious peril. I, I, we're not with Joe. Not with Joe. Considering um, where we stand right now regarding our... First Amendment rights and what just happened recently. Our channel got a major boost thanks to shout out real, to Matt Taibbi, real journalist Matt Taibbi, uh, who had to endure the wrath of our congresswoman because she actually admits that she believes in censorship, which is just wonderful. Uh, is that surprising you to, at all? Like, does that surprise? Like, uh, it's so not surprising. Well, considering what she would do if she could get her hands on this guy, Julian. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah she'd lock him up and throw away the key or she, sure would she would lock him up in a dungeon and make sure he gets eaten so <laughs> either way it wouldn't be a very good she's end. very reptilian that way 
So without further ado, we are going to bring in our esteemed guest who, you know, has been on our show multiple times before. He's the expert on basically all things Julian Assange and um, has a new book out called Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange, which, as you guys know, I, I'm a note taker. So, uh, yeah, I, I no, I am a diligent note. I am. I, I like my stole of shadow proof. Welcome back to Generational Change. I'm smiling because I like the I like the props and uh, I, I love seeing the notes. I love seeing the pages. You, you the, like my my yeah. well, I do that and I go through and I highlight and I take like notes like this and then I have to go through and make a list. Yeah, that's the law school student in me. I can't help myself. <laughs> no, I just. You know, this is my first book, so seeing people engage with it is oh, like, really? it's a really great job, dude. I mean, look, the the cover's great. Obviously, you got Abby to do the foreword. You got a lot of great quotes. Of course, you got the two most prominent members of the what I would call For the First Amendment see. community, Ellsberg and Chomsky. Noam Chomsky so, and yeah. Ellsberg. Uh, you definitely did it well, man. Hope it's uh, selling well and. You know, let's talk about it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I um, uh, I i don't think I'll have any problem talking about this because I do so much work on it. But I'm just back from Berlin. I was in Berlin for a conference by this collective called the Disruption Network Lab. And I got to speak on a panel with Stella Assange and, and, and meet her for the first time. Um, and it was really great to be able to speak to um, a group there and and share this work so it's, it's a great stop now to come to your podcast uh, come to your live stream which i have done before no it's awesome and i i always like when there's the interconnectedness between like we've had stella on the show i have not met her in person um but i have met john and gabriel shifton in person and that to me was really really cool and it's so interesting because there's just these regular guys from australia and yet I was kind of like fangirling about just the fact that what they've endured, which I know sounds ridiculous, but it was really cool um, to meet them. So I completely understand that that kind of vibe and nothing in just to be clear, like there's nothing like new and revelationary, but it is compiled in such a good way to make it so understandable, like how you broke it down, that it's, it, it makes it so much easier because I think there's so many urban legends. I mean, there's people that still are hung up on the like Swedish, uh, the ridiculous accusations that like, there's so many stupid things. Um, so I really appreciate this. I broke down into five categories, but feel free to like change this up. If you, if you feel like you need to. No, you're uh, fine. Is that uh, good? Yeah, it's fine. So I, I'm not trying to hijack your show, but I have to ask, did you see, uh, did you meet, uh, John and Gabriel when, uh, they came around with their documentary Ithaca. No, and here's why. So okay. they were here. When was that that we hosted them? We hosted mm-hmm. them. I want to say it was like Chiba a year, a year and a half ago, um, uh, and uh, oh, Medina okay. Benjamin's place down here in Miami. And it wasn't for Ithaca. It was they were just traveling around, and I was able to get a couple of like local journalists and people. And we had a panel discussion and like that. So I met them then. And then Gabriel actually reached out to me when they were starting to plan this for the movie. And lo and behold, Florida is just not a really good place for them. And they were getting offers left and right all up and down California, people offering them to show it. And here they couldn't get anybody interested. Um, And so it, it just, yeah, it's depressing. We're in Florida. 
Okay, well, um, I'm gonna wait till the right spot during our conversation and then bring something up that is really amusing, but I'll let you go ahead. Okay, so the first thing I think that is really important when we're talking about this case, and so this is gonna be partially me really needing people to understand what this is about because people don't, they just sort of note like sound bites. And so the first thing I want to talk about is how they're using the Espionage Act Um, a little bit. You could talk a little bit about like the history of it. But um, and then I also want to tie that into the Obama administration. And when that sort of was like, you know, you know, our it's like, what would you call him? He's the porter in chief for the immigration, like espionage person. I don't even know what you call him. But so let's talk Espionage Act and why this is such a big deal. Um, that Julian Assange is being charged and and not as hacking as aiding and abetting, right? Yeah, I suppose you could call Barack Obama the espionage president. Okay. And the reason why being that they actually called the court where Julian Assange would be tried the espionage court. And that's something that CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou discusses. And it's because, you know, if you bring an espionage act case in this, it's it's not likely to end in anything other than a conviction or a plea agreement. It's you know almost impossible for the government to lose if they pursue their cases in that court. And we can get to that specifically. Uh, but to address your question, the Espionage Act, just to give people this brief history lesson, is yeah. over a hundred years old and. It, it has always been used against dissenters. Uh, the U.S. government has, at least until, if you go all the way back to the early 1900s, you know, and even today, right now, yeah. our government is so insecure when it comes to people being against wars. Um, it, it doesn't feel that they can pursue war policies and just try and persuade people and then try democratically to win them over. So whether, and again, I'm not actually talking about us debating whether, uh, you know, we should pursue a war. No, I'm talking about the fact that like people who decide that they're against a war are going to be isolated and punished. And that's the way that it's always been. And that's the roots of the Espionage Act. So I don't think it really matters whether it's good or bad, people who have reasons for not supporting conflicts. Going all the way back to World War I, this is when the Espionage Act was perfected under President Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, you know, someone who has a position in Washington, D.C. There's a Wilson Center where people uh, aspire to his foreign policy. And so uh, he came up with this. It was a kind of sedition law. And uh, because people didn't want the U.S. to be involved in World War I, you know, they started going after people and arresting them. Uh, they went after those who had independent publications, anti-war magazines. And, uh, of course, they also used it to go after African-Americans who were against the war as well, especially because they were um, speaking out and uh, using their platforms to speak against the war. And so to see it now applied to Julian Assange is actually, you know, a part of the continuity of history. Uh, uh, The most prominent and well-known case, you can go around and ask people about it. They'll probably be able to tell you about Daniel Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers whistleblower. Of course, he 
released those papers to end the Vietnam War and I think played a big role in hastening its end, bringing it to a point where we were no longer engaged in this conflict. And so uh, you look at Barack Obama's administration and the people who got prosecuted under that. Those are people who were standing up against national security policies. Uh, some a couple of the cases were inherited, meaning that the Bush Justice Department had started those cases. But that being said, Barack Obama had the most prosecutions under the Espionage Act than any other presidencies combined. More, you know, you add them up, <laughs> equals more than all of them. And that's because uh, during the digital age, we were they they were faced with a threat, and they figured that now it was so easy. All of these people in positions, lower level positions, had millions upon millions of digital documents at their fingertips. It was so easy. You could just put things on a hard drive or a thumb drive or a CD like Chelsea Manning did, and you could walk out with it and you could give it away. And you know, you didn't really have to bother with uh, the printer necessarily. You didn't have to go to a Xerox machine. You know, Pen uh, Daniel Ellsberg had to go and he took thousands upon thousands of pages and he, he didn't have to Xerox it just once. He had to Xerox it like, several times in order to send these stacks of documents to journalists at newspapers that were going to publish content from it. And you just don't have to do that now because we can compress it into digital files and then we can email it to people and you can share it quite easily. So uh, they were spooked. They were afraid and they decided that the way that they were going to manage the ease in which you could now leak would be to make examples out of people and punish them. In fact, I referenced uh, an official who was in the Obama White House uh, or in the administration named Dennis Blair, who was quoted by the New York Times basically saying so that they were going after leaks to make an example out of someone. And so they did not have a problem with going after people like Thomas Drake, uh, NSA whistleblower, the case collapsed. Uh, it was actually an embarrassment. But then they got CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou, uh, someone who John Brennan wanted to nail, uh, basically told the Justice Department to go find something to prosecute him for. They actually said, well, we don't really have anything. We didn't have a case. It would go find something to prosecute. That's what John Kiriakou says, that he found what he was getting documents for discovery. Of course, he took a plea agreement. He did not go to trial. Uh, and then you have the Chelsea Manning case. Of course, that's the source the, of the documents that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks publish. Uh, there's a leaker named Stephen Kim who uh, talks about North Korea's nuclear weapons capabilities with Fox News reporter James Rosen. And that's actually an important case in the history of the Obama administration because the FBI singles out James Rosen at Fox News as an aider, a better, and co-conspirator, which tips people off and makes really everybody in the establishment news media angry. It suggests that they were contemplating whether they had grounds to bring an espionage act case against James Rosen for discussing this information with Stephen Kim. And uh, so... That's something that leads to the administration having to adopt media guidelines. It actually comes out at the same time as the Associated Press is outraged to learn that 
hundred phone lines were uh, targeted by subpoenas and confidential sources of many of their reporters in, I think their DC office was compromised because they talked to a source about a plot in Yemen, um, alleged underwear bomb plot type thing. There was something they uncovered. They published the story and the government claimed that they had actually compromised a source because they, they had an informant that was inside a terrorist cell. I think it was an Al Qaeda cell. And they said, well, you, you, um, you know, we were, we were working on unraveling something really major and uh, you compromised it. So they were involved in doing this leak investigation that, the collateral damage were numerous journalists, confidential sources, because they didn't just target it to the source. They were looking for all kinds of other communications and that outraged, understandably, all of these people in the media. And they had to, uh, several meetings over it and they had to announce new media guidelines to uh, pacify some of this outrage. And so this is a big part of the Obama administration. And uh, the espionage prosecutions at, under the prosecutions of the Espionage Act do start to peter out. There's not really many in the last few years of Obama's presidency. Um, and in fact, he marks the end of his presidency with the commutation of Chelsea Manning's sentence, showing mercy because oh, she had been attempting suicide while she was in military prison. It was very clear how harsh and unjust this punishment had become. And uh, however, you know, you do see that uh, at that time, Daniel Hale has leaked the drone papers to The Intercept. Um, he's potentially um, going to be investigated. There is there is a, a raid um, and then nothing happens with it until President Donald Trump um, and you know, there's 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 a few other espionage act prosecutions of course Edward Snowden comes forward with the documents yeah. that are given to Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras and Ewan McCaskill and um and they're just very aggressive about going after Edward Snowden so but let, let me ask you this because one of the things was was that the Obama administration or at least I mean Eric Holder um they he, he stopped short of really going after Julian, but, and I never really understood because he was still a prisoner anyway. He was a prisoner in one form or another, but they never really were going to pursue it because they recognized that they had that, what you referred to, or I don't know who refers to the New York times problem. Yeah. And, and ultimately that's, if you're going to go after the person who publishes, then you're going to have to go after all of those other types of publications. But so what, what talk about the impetus between um, Obama and Trump, I mean, besides Mike Pompeo wanting to kill Julian, but, uh, like a, like a psychopath, um, uh, yes. like that somehow they think they were able to have the, what they needed to be able to be successful in prosecuting, um, going after him and going for the extradition. So I don't actually think that they have anything different from president Obama and the justice department under Eric Holder, but what they do and they were very open about this. In fact, you know, Pompeo does actually connect to this because he's very blatant about saying that he's not going to let the First Amendment hold him back from yeah. pursuing this prosecution. And that's it. That's those considerations that existed institutionally in the Justice Department. They went away and it was easy for them to go away. 
uh, because I don't think I include it in the book. Uh, you know, I had to keep it within a reasonable amount of pages. So some of these things don't make it in there. But one thing that people should know is that Attorney General Jeff Sessions had a visceral hatred of leaks throughout his Senate career. Uh, and before he was Attorney General, I didn't take him seriously because every time that he was in a committee hearing, you know, you'd have Diane Feinstein and you might have uh, other, these other recognizable senators. And then Jeff Sessions would come up. And of course, in his very southerly accent, like a Civil War general, he would say something really crazy about what he thought leaks were doing to the country and you know, basically treat it like it was, you know, some kind of culture war issue. Like, you know, the way people would talk about, I don't know, heavy metal music or whatever. Like he was seriously seemed to think that like leaks were bringing the country down or something like that. And when he got into his position of, uh, as, as attorney general, he, he was the perfect person to revive the prosecution against WikiLeaks and to work with those in the CIA who wanted to nail Julian Assange because he really just um, shared that dislike for people who published documents without authorization, people who went to the press with this material. So he knew, he said it right from the beginning that he was going to pursue Julian Assange. And so they did with this grand jury um, and also then in at the same time, because in the first few months of Trump, we get those Vault 7 materials that get published about the cyber warfare and hacking capabilities of the CIA that give us an unprecedented look at the means of tracking, uh, monitoring, and controlling different things through technology that the, that the CIA has at their fingertips. And so in retaliation, you have a CIA that wants Julian Assange's head on a pi on a on a pike, basically, and um, and then you've got a Jeff Sessions at the Justice Department who is open to their thirst for revenge. Of course, eventually Jeff Sessions gets pushed out and replaced by Bill Barr, but I don't think Bill Barr is any less willing to play along with this. He's he's the same kind of character who is willing to accommodate the CIA. Well, a lot of the supporters of uh, Trump in particular uh, have a real libertarian streak, especially when it comes to civil liberties, and they were not having any of this prosecution on Assange. And it almost seemed like there was this, uh, you know, sort of civil war, if you will. And it's going to happen now because we see how the reaction to the war in Ukraine and just war in general has really turned off a huge portion of the country. And... I think that that in many ways is the essence of what Assange has done is he's exposed the deep state in a way that they were confident that they could put back in a bottle, but they're not able to do it. No matter how much censorship they try to enact, it's like, you know, Wasserman Schultz does what she does with Matt Taibbi. And the biggest takeaway was the last thing she said before uh, her time was yielded. And that was, I firmly believe in the deep state and I firmly believe in censorship. 
And she did not say it like that. She basically did. She, she said did that say, I'm, I'm in supporter. with the FBI. I'm in with the deeps. That is the deep. I thing. know, but she didn't use that term. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Doesn't matter. It's okay. the same thing. No, I know that. So she's saying what she's saying. And yet it seems like that part was kind of glossed over on a lot of people. But what she did say is a reflection of what a lot of people on both sides of the aisle think that they are above reproach and that because they see themselves as sort of these masters of the universe and, you know, that the people are, you know, just peons, peasants, if you will, and that they should just accept this as it is, you know, they have to crush dissent against somebody like Assange, but the longer he he's able to hang around, no pun intended, the more I think people realize, or at least should realize on the Hill, that this is a futile exercise because the people are getting more enraged by the day. And that to me is why I think there's sort of this boiling point that we're reaching in our culture. I just don't understand why you would think that, okay, then come and enter the Biden administration. Somebody would have the common sense that maybe they had in the Obama administration that say, yeah, maybe we need to let this go. A lot of the Biden administration has the same philosophy. No, I know. Well, no, it's worse. Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. Is that correct? Like, that's what we're seeing because they've had an opportunity. Merrick Garland could could have an opportunity to, to, you know, drop this. Yeah. The story of the Biden White House is that a lot of what they've inherited from Trump, they just don't have the fortitude to unravel. They they see it and. There are obstacles and landmines, and then there's some of it that they actually do seem to agree with and want to accept. And then there's some of it that they look to the upcoming election and they seem prepared to see if they could take parts of it and make it their platform. I mean, well, look, we're seeing uh, Joe Biden embrace parts of the anti-immigration plank to perhaps, I suppose, insulate himself against some arguments during the re-election. And that's entirely unnecessary. Um, I think it alienates people who would want to vote for him. But that's the thinking. That's the way that these, uh, I, I call them Clinton Democrats. I mean, they're, they're neoliberal Democrats, but I just sort of do that so people can identify their bankrupt politics because it doesn't really have much cur- currency anymore in my view, it's very it's very antiquated and, and people who maintain that it's necessary in order to win are, are actually um, backward. It's the kind of thing that is devastating to communities because it enables fascism, it enables totalitarianism, it enables people who are engaged in really soul-crushing culture wars, I think, against everyone. So that was the way I would put it. And the, the fact is that Merrick Garland, Joe Biden, Tony Blinken, um, Jake Sullivan, some of these other people, they have this, sh- they, they think they probably have this shared disgust toward Julian Assange. But if they don't share that disgust, then they at least don't feel like it's worth it to fight. And they've allowed it to continue. And they've accepted that this limbo where Julian Assange is being punished by process that could go on for two, three, four more years, maybe before he's even extradited to the United States. And then we can talk about how long a trial might take. Well, they've accepted that that's fine for our country to do, no matter how much it's tearing 
at whatever we have left of the First Amendment. They find it to be perfectly acceptable and they have their own way of discussing the figure of Julian Assange and what he did and didn't do uh, in a very deceitful and dishonest manner so that they don't have to take responsibility and fess up to what they're doing. Because we've got universal condemnation from press freedom and human rights organizations around the world, and it doesn't reflect well on the United States. And there's a lot of things that we like to tell ourselves that we value that shouldn't align with prosecuting Julian Assange. And yet they don't really care because uh, it's either too hard to stand up to the CIA and tell them that we're not going to bring him to the United States and put him on trial, or they're really invested in this and they've they've actually convinced themselves that Julian is this kind of person that they have taught themselves to hate. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years regarding Ukraine and what information, if uh, an investigative journalist is going to leak regarding how the funds have been appropriated, if you will. We all know that the significant, overwhelming majority of the money that is being given to this effort is most more than likely not going where it belongs. Uh, and so eventually, will there be another Julian Assange who's going to step up and release this information? Not at this rate, you know. But something I wanted to touch on, though, is is one of the ways that that it's almost like they get away with it. Reminds me of the whole concept of othering when you sort of put somebody down so then it justifies treating somebody in a different manner. This whole concept of people saying that Julian Assange is not a journalist and so therefore he is not entitled to those protections. And I actually, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other. I think he is, but that's irrelevant to me from the standpoint of people are not understanding that the freedom of the press is much more important of our right to have that information and get that information than what the distinguishing characteristics are of the person disseminating that information. Like, I, I just don't think people grasp the importance of of what that is, that they're they're like arguing, they're nitpicking over something that really is irrelevant from the standpoint of our right to that information. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, but I will state that my point of view is that Julian Assange is a journalist and that's something to fight over because the fact that the U.S. government won't label him a journalist. They're doing that deliberately so that it's harder for him to defend himself in a court because they know if he was viewed as a journalist that they couldn't bring this case. And they've done a lot to coat the case with this veneer of Julian Assange as a malicious actor, someone who engages in hacking. And they they know that they have to put that gloss on this indictment or else they wouldn't be able to get away with what they're doing. And they go above and beyond. They did this in the extradition case, at least the prosecutors from the Crown Prosecution Service did this during the extradition trial. They would keep making this point that, oh, no, he's not being criminalized for just publishing information. And you say, well, that can't be true. I read the indictment. That's what it's all about. It's about publishing these files. They wouldn't be bringing this case if they weren't upset about him publishing. That's what it says in the indictment. It says, no, no, we're upset that 
these particular documents that are charged exposed informants and people who were working with the government and, and all of this. And they're trying to basically like have their cake and eat it too, to use that cliche, because like, no, you're, you're upset that this information was published and what it did to reflect poorly and bring embarrassment to the U S government. And you found this clever way that you could try to make it seem like you're just, Oh no, we're coming after him because he was reckless and he didn't take care of the documents and try and make sure that people weren't hurt. Well, you know, as far as we know, nobody was hurt. They haven't produced the name of a single person who was killed or badly injured from the release of these documents. That's all just this game that they play. So I, I do think that it's worth struggling with people. So that's why the first words in my book are Julian Assange is a journalist, at least when I first start the chapters that describe the sections of, you know, the different aspects of the case. I start off with the first ch chapter that is about the charges and allegations um, saying Julian Assange is a journalist. And I think you have to struggle even with press freedom organizations that won't recognize it. Cause if you just say, it doesn't matter if you think Julian Assange is a journalist. What matters is that he engaged in journalism and yeah. that must be protected. Then I think that you're, 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 you're giving an inch to the uh, U.S. government. And uh, that's the only thing I agree with Mike Pompeo on when he says never give an inch. <laughs> I, think, I think that you should uh, make sure that you – aren't giving them room to delegitimize uh, Julian Assange because what they are doing with this case is to blow a hole in the First Amendment. Yeah, I just, what bothers me so much is this idea of some sort of like arbiter as to what is and what is not a journalist. Um, if you're acting in that capacity, you're acting in that capacity because then are we talking about someone has to have certain credentials? Well, what are someone's credentials? Do they have to be like certified? Do you have to be licensed? Do you have to, and, and that to me, it's sort of like, it's a rabbit hole that to me, it's like, yeah, I certainly, there are definitely journalists that I respect more than others. But um, once you start doing that, then to me, it becomes arbitrary. So my concept is we should have it be completely arbitrary in the other direction. If somebody is doing something in a journalistic capacity and releasing information that is in the public interest, they deserve the protection of disseminating that as a journalist, whether or not that is what they do permanently as their occupation or not. Like, I yeah. just don't like the idea of determining who is and who isn't that. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're in agreement on that. Yeah. I don't think that anyone, I, I think there's a, there's a there's a different set of rules there, there are rules for you and me as people who do, do not occupy positions in government. And I don't think we should be saying that uh, people uh, can't be journalists uh, if, if they want to be journalists. But also, like, it means something different. If I say that somebody isn't a journalist, then I'm having a subjective discussion. And usually I think, as I understand it, a lot of people who are upset about journalists who lie, who deceive, who don't publish the truth, who work for the government, who are more concerned about access to power, who don't really practice ethics when it comes to journalism. That's a that's a act of disgust to say, oh, you're not a journalist. You don't actually behave and work like a journalist. But when the government says it, what they're saying is that you don't have rights, that 
you're not going to have the protections that you could have because to to be a journalist means that you can have global sympathy. You know, like Jamal Khashoggi gets murdered by Saudi Arabia I mean, because of the kingdom's involvement. And it's one thing if they murder him, but also think of like the outrage was so much more worse because he had that journalist label that was affixed to him. And so they know what they're doing with Julian Assange. If he isn't a journalist, then they can get away with so much more when it comes to going after what was done, uh, you know, and all of the contributions that he made to our wealth of knowledge about wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, the conduct of our U.S. diplomats globally, and the lies that we were told about people who were rounded up, the hundreds of people who were taken to this gulag on Cuba and put in military prisons, all of that, and the, the, the very visceral and ugly and revealing video collateral murder that just showed what the war is really like for troops in that is something that they know you know they they can't get away with pursuing julian assange if they don't deny him the journalist label yeah I just want one more thing about this and then I'm, I'm going to let that go. I think it's important for people to understand what journalists are actually supposed to do. And you did talk about this quite a bit, that there's sort of like this attitude of he was actively seeking classified information. Yeah, that's what journalists do. They hope that something like that could land upon them and they will put it forward. Like that's the point. And the fact that he would be criticized for even having a list of stuff he'd like to get his hands on is crazy to me. Like, that's the whole point of a journalist. Am I like, I went to J school. I graduated in 92, a very <laughs> long time ago, but my understanding was that that's the point. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, I think we can connect this to the hearing, which I also tuned into when Matt Taibbi was being questioned about his ethics as a journalist and all these people were saying, you know, you're, you're not objective because, you know, the like what you've been putting out might be helpful to Elon Musk. And that's just not, you know, and also that like, oh, you can't you can't publish certain scoops that are, are going to, I guess, benefit you or they had all these different. You can't ideas. make money anymore. Kevin. You can't make money. Make and money. There, there are all these th all these this crap they were throwing at Matt Taibbi just to show that, well, they, they just flat out don't agree with the idea that Twitter files are being published. And that's a lot of like what we saw with the documents from WikiLeaks. Well, they, these people just flat out don't think that this information should have ever seen the light of day. And that's what they're really saying when they attack Julian Assange, when they talk about, you know, how Chelsea Manning had to face the music and they think it was appropriate that she would be sentenced and put through all that she went through with her trial. You know, whatever they have to say, what they're truly expressing is that this is information that should have never been known by the public. And they are defending the secrecy industrial complex as we as we know it. And uh, there is this case is illustrative because it just shines a light on mm -hmm. all the misconceptions 
that are out there about journalism, as well as the way in which the government uh, gets us to believe certain things that are just not true about the way journalism you're hitting on the key one, which is the solicitation of information. Journalists are soliciting information all the time. You have to. If you know, if 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 that's what you do, if you're going to break stories, you have to ask sources, you know, what do they know? What kind of access do you have? Can you get me anything? Could you help me break this story? That's what you want to do if you're really interested in the truth and exposing what's going on. I mean, look, let's just, just take a pet issue right now. Let's say you want to expose Trump's crimes. You want to get Trump into court and prosecuted and put on trial so he can't run for president again. How are you going to do it? You have to solicit your sources in order to get them to give you something. You have to, or else and only through your confidence and your aggressive pursuit of whatever they have, are you going to show them that you're serious? And two, are you going to get anywhere in securing that information that is going to give you the report that you want to show people what Donald Trump has been doing, what you suspect. I mean, you're motivated to go after it because you suspect. So this is these are hunches. I put in a more put in a more um, alternative media or independent context. This is what Cy Hirsch is doing right now with the Nord Stream pipeline. He's got a hunch. He's pursuing it. He's finding people who will talk to him, who have access to information. He's putting it together. He's collecting information to piece together a conspiracy. He is soliciting information. It's what journalists do. Thank you. I've said that before. I said that when we were talking to Matt Taibbi. I'm like, people, you you realize that the job of the journalist is to gather the information, curate the information and explain, like you realize that that's into, and he should also make money doing his job. Like, I don't understand how somehow this got lost. The problem is, is that on the Democratic side in particular, um, and it's amazing how easily you can peg people who watch MSNBC or CNN on the regular, you know, they complain all the time about Fox News. Well, you're a drone just the same if you watch the other two networks. And so- you know, journalism in many ways has, especially on the Democratic side, has evolved into stenography. It's not about doing journalism as much as it's about being in the elite class, especially in D.C., in San Francisco and New York and places like that. Doing investigative journalist involves looking like Greg Palast, having the hat. <laughs> OK, looking, he does. You know, basically, you know, the old time journalist with the with the pencil in the ear and the notepad and stuff like that. No, that's not what we, yeah, exactly. That's not what we want our journalists to be. We want our journalists to be Ivy League schmucks like everybody else. and Talking heads. But know, those aren't journalists. Those are talking heads. But to the liberal who buys into this idea that Julian Assange should be hanged for treason, they think that journalists are people like, pick any person at random. Wolf Blitzer. Uh, like Philip Bump. Any of like those Phil, people. Uh, <laughs> Philip Bump would be a great example, or Chris Saliza would be a great example of that particular class who they think are journalists, but in reality, they're just partisan hacks. That's all they are. And they're paid very well to be them. Uh, okay, so I wanted to bring up something, and I was waiting until we were dragging the media because yes. I have to just tell you that I'm very amused by the review that was printed by the film critic for the New York Times of this Ithaca film. Oh, okay. So for guys, anyone who doesn't know, Ithaca is the documentary 
um, that is about John Shipton, that's Julian Assange's father and his pursuit of justice for Julian. And I, I know it's about other things as well, but that's the perspective of the, the movie, yes? Yes, yeah. Okay. Uh, and just a plug that you know, people should be on the lookout. Uh, they are coming to many different cities through the United States over the next three to four weeks. Ithaca uh, with a K, not Ithaca, like my son's school. Ithaca with the K. And uh, so I think they just replaced their, I think their their uh, longtime film critic retired. And I don't know if this person is going to be their film critic, but they apparently went through quite an unjust experience having to watch this film because they write, uh, a fr- they call it a frustrating new advocacy advocacy documentary about the WikiLeaks founder. <laughs> and they write twice that Ithaca is uh, a frustrating advocacy document- uh, documentary. And then let me just, let me see, where else do they do this? They do this. Yeah. <laughs> they do this twice. They have to tell us that they're frustrated by watching the documentary no less than two times. And like to, to feel that afflicted from having to watch uh, a movie that was made about this person is, I mean, it's like, I don't know who you are, but um, they, uh, they then go on to uh, say things like, um, you know, the documentary insists that the computer hack. So also the thing that they're doing throughout this is they're weaving in their own misplaced and mis and ill-conceived notions of who Julian Assange is. And, uh, it's just it's just an it's, it's a really eye opening view of 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 Julian Assange. Hey, I'll, I'll just I'll just read it for you. You can pick up on all the red flags. Julian Assange's legal travels began in 2010 when Swedish prosecutors ordered his detention on suspicion of rape and sexual coercion. You have to lead with that, because right. like that's well, the most, yeah. to avoid being extradited to Stockholm. Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, jumped bail and took refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Okay, so you're accepting the U.S. government that it's not okay for him to ex- to seek political asylum. Then today he's in London's Belmarsh prison fighting extradition to the United States on 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act. Yet Ithaca, frustrating an advocacy documentary directed by Ben Lawrence, produced by Assange's brother Gabriel Shipton, argues that Assange's most crucial trial is in the court of public opinion. The documentary insists the computer hacker who's accused of publishing classified government documents is the victim of a smear campaign. What exactly those smears are, the film declines to specify or debunk. On your own, you may recall that the viral stories about Assange have ranged from criminal to embarrassing, like when Ecuador said its increasingly unwelcome guests needed to tidy up after his cat. That's not even like on the top 15 of whatever I've heard about Julian, but okay. Free speech advocates looking to hear a strong argument defending Assange against those espionage charges will not find one here. Only vague calls to protect the First Amendment. We're told the case is unjust, but never told why or even what exactly the case is. Instead, the documentary repeats three monotonous points. Journalists lie. Regardless, Assange is a journalist who deserves protection. Also, his family misses him a heck of a lot. I mean, like, this is such like smug garbage. It is. It's the New York Times. That's such yeah. trash. That is, re- that is. What do you expect from the newspaper that endorsed I know, but I'm still going to critique it. I'm still going to critique it on the basis of what I'm reading on the page. I'm sorry. It's just such, it's, it's, that's trash to me. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't value that news outlet. I haven't in probably 40 years. Hey, listen, they clearly felt bothered enough by what you wrote to have to write a smear article about it. 
basically say, yeah, don't read this. This is no, it was about the movie. Oh, the movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Still, they don't want to cover. They don't care. <laughs> They're state-sponsored media. I love when people talk about other countries that have state-sponsored media, like as if we don't have that. I like talking to certain people that I know pretty well that still read the New York Times thinking that that's news. <laughs> so I don't know. I think that for all of those involved to go around and print that the New York Times called it a frustrating advocacy documentary is actually like an, an endorsement of the film that like it, it might mean that you should come see this because the New York Times didn't like it. It's a frustrating advocacy film. They're advocating for things that are trifle, you know, like the First Amendment. That's that vague, that vague reference to that thing that, you know, allows us to not be a complete fascist dictatorship. But OK. Kevin, <laughs> why do you think so many people, uh, particularly, uh, you know, older Democratic Party voters seem to welcome censorship that they think it's acceptable? Fear. I don't know. A lot of people like being told what to do. It's really easy. I think it, it's, it's, you know, if, uh, independent thought is tough because if you come up with your own way of thinking and it doesn't match with the way things are organized around you, then you have to challenge what is happening in your community. And that takes work. Uh, organizing is hard. Activism is difficult. Uh, it's much easier to sit around and tell people that, they can't have what they want. And I think that these Democratic voters, I don't know. I'm sorry. I have a little bit of generational resentment. And the people who are somewhere between like, you know, 70 and 90 years old are some of the most entitled and um, most self-centered Self-important. Yeah. Very yeah. Self and and they just basically constantly tell the lower generations what they can't have and what they shouldn't have. Meanwhile, they get to go on their Viking cruises in Europe and get to do whatever they want. They've had the best life ever. They've gotten the the best version of the American dream that will ever exist in yeah. this country, probably. There's nothing that they haven't had um, especially if they are white. I was going to say this, yeah. let's, let's say, let's clarify that when we're talking about people, they got the benefits of that generation. But I would argue that even some people of color have benefited remarkably because not, not that, not that all of them, but I think that there is more of an upper class for, um, for, for people of color as well. And, and, you know, some of them, some of these people, at least as they're represented in Congress, like Jim Clyburn, oh. you know, and, and, and others are so conservative in the ways that they, you know, impose their their views on others. And then, you know, you're telling people about existential crises. You, you've got uh, a threat of nuclear Armageddon breaking out. You've got climate catastrophe and all of that. And anytime there's any early discussed by any of us, we're just dismissed. We're pushed away and we're made to talk about things that are largely inconsequential. Um, and like, you know, spending, spending from 2016 on to, I mean, really and truly 2021, the end of 2020, talking about Trump and Russia was was just a massive distraction. But if you ask a lot of these boomers, it would be like the biggest thing for them trying to uncover this scandal. 
like well, trying to uh, unravel this. This was the thing that occupied their minds the most. Not anything that is going to make it harder for us to live in the future. You know, we're not talking about the poisoning of our water supply. Oh, here, let me share you this. I had a chance to sit down with, with, with Stella and, and have a bit of a conversation after the panel. And I also, um, I did the panel with Stefania Marizzi, Italian journalist, oh, yeah. who did some fabulous work on this. And she's, she's a great person to interview, although probably difficult for you to talk to on this show because she's in Italy and it's, you know, the time that it's you would want. It's hard for us with the Europeans, man. The yeah, Europeans yeah. throw our whole game off here. When you want to have them on as guests, it's nearly impossible. But I sit down with them and we're talking about what it might take to convince the Biden White House to free Julian Assange. I think that's a good exercise, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the one thing I the one thing that I can share from that conversation is that I I I mentioned to them the issue of the fact that we just have trains that are exploding all the time in the United States. We just have train derailments. And I yeah. tell them I tell them we have 1500 to 1700 train derailments every year. And they stop me like, what? What did you just say? I said, yeah. Um, you know, we're really uh, not a developed country because every year there are 1,500 to 1,700 train derailments. And I explained the issue, but they just couldn't believe it. Like that's the kind of thing that doesn't seem plausible to an outsider. How could a country have such a system? But that's not a top priority for any of these people who are watching MSNBC or CNN. You know, they just want to know when Donald Trump's going to be arrested and on what kind of charge, even though that charge doesn't really. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but whatever he gets arraigned on, if he ever did get arraigned on any charge. I bet his lawyers plead out. I bet they use the system to their advantage maybe he'd get a misdemeanor on his record. It's not going to be anything that stops him from running for office again and he'll be done with it. And the prosecutors will be done with it and they'll be happy to move on and no longer do any more Trump investigations. And so you're not going to get the resolution that you want because you need to understand that the system is not there to hold the rich accountable. You're never going to see these people who you want be brought down the only times that people like that get brought down are when there are like these seismic moments or shifts, like when Harvey Weinstein got brought yeah. down by people. That that guy had been insulated for so long, he was even able to send spies out to go after I people a, who were aligned. I had a friend who was a producer in the business who was very well connected and told me like a decade before it happened, he's like, you don't understand what Weinstein's been doing to these girls for decades. And I'm thinking, yeah, well, when you're that high up on the totem pole, it's like if you're going to go after Donald Trump, there is one thing and one thing only to go after him on. The violation of the Emoluments Clause while he was president, how he used his son-in-law as a proxy with the Saudi royal family to basically funnel billions and billions of dollars in, you know, pay to play, you know, you know, events and you know, using his hotels and things that he was never supposed to be doing, which were clear violations. But what that would require is allowing the floodgates to open on everybody. How is Nancy Pelosi worth $100 million? Well, if a case like Trump's gets prosecuted for for the reason just mentioned, then somebody's going to take up that type of a case. In the end of the day, they're all looking to protect each other. 
It is an insulated class of people that get away with insider trading, for God's sake. Yeah. I mean, the system is just, it's the system that's broken. Trump is just really, really good at exposing all of it. And his attitude is, this is a corrupt system. I've played in it for a long time. And I can assure you, it's everything and more of what you think. And you know what? People love that. They just do. And that's why if you think he can't get back in that White House in two years, I don't know what you're looking at. I think it's going to be an uh, it's like a foregone conclusion. He'll get back into Joe. Can't I don't think Joe can't win again. The only person who could beat him is DeSantis. That's the race. I don't think Joe can't win again. I think he barely won the first time. And he only did that because of a pandemic. Like, I don't know. I, I just don't see him being able to win a second time. No. But what are your thoughts on that, Kevin? You're watching this. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if he's going to run. I mean, is he going to run? Do we think he's still, do you think he's still going to run? Sign, every sign points to him running. That's okay. What happened with his wife? Why did, why did Jill get, why'd she have to change what she was saying? Cause there were those two days where she came out and said something really positive about Joe and how it made it sound like there was going to be an announcement very soon. And then she came out the next day and was like, I'll respect whatever decision he makes. But even so, so let's say Joe doesn't run. They don't have anybody else that could win either. It's not no. like there's somebody else that has, they don't have anybody who could beat either Trump or DeSantis, to be honest with Bernie's you. Bernie's not going to run a third time. And it'll probably be, we've, we've thought about this just because of how sad the Democratic establishment is and how they really will go for broke. But, you know, Newsom is probably the most likely person that they'll, you know, get behind, even though his track record is so bad. And once it gets exposed on the national stage, especially being that he's California, it's going to be really bad. Uh, So the person who I would like to see them recruit uh, and who would be the smartest person to recruit if, well, so, okay, first let's, let's, let's accept the premise that somehow they, even though it's a little ridiculous because they're not usually that smart, but let's, let's accept the premise that they go, okay, Joe's too old. He can't win again. And there are also problems with how he's organized his presidency and he's not electable for a second term. Who else can we get? So I'm not saying I like this person, but just for the purposes of our conversation and talking about how politics get gamed out, I think they should recruit J.B. Pritzker from Illinois. I have been in the room with him on uh, once in a private meeting that I will not discuss, but one in a auditorium of about 400 people. And I can tell you that he absolutely can give a really good speech. He's got very good deprecating humor. He's also a billionaire. So Lord knows they're going to want a piece of him. Uh, And he's done a couple of decent things on the margins in the state that will play well. So why, yeah. so why is that? Why were you thinking, Kevin? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because the experience I had here in Chicago, and, and it's okay if you want to end on this bit, because I'm actually passionate about this. Right now, we've got this incredible mayoral race happening in the third largest city in the country between Brandon Johnson, can't even believe that I'm saying that that's the person who could be the mayor of my city, against Paul Vallis, Brandon Johnson against Paul Vallis. It's one of the most incredible fights in recent politics. You've got Brandon Johnson, who has talked about defunding the police, 
who wants treatment, not trauma, and is talking about putting a uh, a billionaire's tax or a mansion tax in Chicago in order to fund programs for affordable housing versus Paul Vallis, who is a guy who has never seen anything he didn't think he could capitalize on and turn a profit. He's oh, gone yeah. to New Orleans. He was in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He was in Philadelphia. And he's just left a trail of uh, Brandon said a trail of tears, which I think is really like quite stark way of describing it, but like just left human wreckage behind him in every city he goes. He's never been elected to a single office and he's run so many times. Yeah, and like, this 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 guy mm-hmm. is just privatizing everything he possibly can. And he's here in Chicago now and he's uh, he's he's been caught. He said He's more of a Republican than a Democrat earlier. He said, I fundamentally oppose abortion. He's been caught with anti-LGBTQ plus groups that spew hate. Um, He's endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police. This is Democrat? This is a guy who's running. Or at least claiming, I I understand, but he's running as a Democrat. Yes, yes, yeah. And he's also changed his party. Brandon's been able to nail him on the fact that Okay, remember, this is not my criteria. I didn't create this, but it's the one they used against Bernie. So now they have to, from Arnie Duncan, who's a horrible, sad excuse for a education secretary, yeah. who's, uh, and all the rest of them have to accept their own criteria. They told us that Bernie Sanders couldn't be president because he's not a real Democrat. Well, you can't elect Paul Vallis now to be the mayor of Chicago because he's not a real Democrat which means that we should get to have Brandon Johnson, who's possibly the most progressive Democrat that I'll ever get to vote. And the reason I get to vote for them, and this is, brings me back to J.B. Pritzker, is because Lori Lightfoot was one of the worst mayors that the yeah, city of ever, Chicago ever. has ever, ever seen. She ran the city like she was working a game show. She had like these stupid sweepstakes during COVID where people could win money if they like called this number or did yeah. this or that. Mm-hmm. And all I had to show was like how many times you got vaccinated or whatever, which is not the way to help people during a pandemic. And then um, on top of that, she's basically being outflanked from the state. So, you know, people would ask her, "Okay, are you going to do this to keep the city safe during the pandemic or are you going to shut that down? And she goes, no, I don't think we're going to shut that down. Then comes the state. Yeah, we're going to close this down. We really don't think we should do that right now. That that would not be safe. And then and then she comes back to it and she's just not a leader. So she goes, "Okay, well, the state says we can't do this. So, yeah, we are going to shut this down. She's constantly being outflanked by the state government here in Illinois. And then I think it just made her look like a really weak leader who couldn't do anything correctly. Um, And she was just constantly in fights with the police, which I'm not necessarily against her when it comes to that. But then she was also just at war with the teachers and the Chicago teachers here are huge, powerful, have a lot of influence. They've bankrolled Brandon Johnson with millions of dollars, actually. It's pretty impressive. And I don't know, like this really gets me going because uh, it's one of the few good things that are happening. And I don't know. Local is important. Local's the most important. We always advocate it. We're always involved like locally. It's huge. Is Pritzker going to get involved or is he staying out of it? Oh, no. What Pritzker said was he is not 
making an endorsement, which to me is as much that's an a de facto endorsement for, for Vallis if there ever was one. What? That's a de facto endorsement of Vallis if there ever was one. How do you figure? I see it that way because of it's it's more of a class thing than anything else. Remember, if you look at the way that the votes were split during this particular primary, uh, you know, the, the Gold Coast or whatever you, you call it, you know, the north, uh, you know, the north side of the city, you know, they all voted for Vallis. I mean, this became a really, sure. you know, big point of contention. But now that Johnson is the sole candidate of color who's running and was able to run on a very progressive platform. If the votes come out in the parts of the city that need help the most, even if voting is, you know, what you would call, you know, empathetic at this point, then he could absolutely win. And if he does win, the question is, is he going to do those things that need to be done? Whereas if somebody like Vallis has basically just been running a, you know, tough on crime campaign and that the way to solve the crime problem in Chicago is to just put more cops on the beat. Which is the age-old adage as far as the you know GOP uh, you know mindset is concerned, rather than saying, well, you know, Chicago is definitely one of those cities that has massive income inequality. People, uh, you know, are struggling to survive in ways that you can't imagine. Whitefoot has been a disaster. We need to think about infrastructural change within the city, and that's really the only way it's going to happen. Uh, yeah, but I'm not convinced not. that it is positive for Vallis because like by saying I don't want to make an endorsement because he you would think he would identify with Vallis, but by not helping Paul, because Paul really would could use an endorsement from J.B. Pritzker right now. He's hit his ceiling. He can't add votes. He actually hasn't really added to the share of the of like he's been at 42 percent for the last three to four weeks. Meanwhile, Brandon Johnson just keeps rising and rising as they do the polls. So the reason why, so Lori Lightfoot got 16 to 17% of the vote in the primary. She actually didn't do higher than she did four years ago, which is sad, but um, she got all these people on the South side of Chicago who that's predominantly an African-American area of the city. And she's not endorsed anybody. She can't endorse anybody. She's not going to endorse. That's a kiss of death. I wouldn't want her endorsement. Yeah, but she can't. You would think she wouldn't want Brandon Johnson because he's the Chicago teacher's candidate, but she called Paul Vallis out as being a racist during her, her, so she can't uh, well, do anything. That's what, but that's what Lightfoot does. Everyone's a racist in her mind. And racism is why she lost the race. Well, he is uh, a racist. He is a racist. But anyways, yeah. um, but all of these voters that were for Lightfoot are going to Brandon and Paul is not going to win them over. Um, so I don't know. I just don't see where Paul I, I've never I've never been able to figure out where his coalition is that gets him to 50 0.1% in the city. It just doesn't yeah. seem like he can, he can do it. I don't think, I don't think it, but you know, look, fear is an ugly thing. And if anybody gets any reasons why they are, you know, more afraid of Brandon than they are of Paul Vallis, you could you could see something take hold, but I just don't think any of the messages have been working that need to work for Paul Vallis to have success. But, Hey, well, well, talk to well, me. Check, 
check in with me or check in with somebody from Chicago after the runoff. And see I hope that goes well for you. Like yeah. I'm always excited when that happens for other people. Yeah. I'm sorry. You can't have that in Florida. I'm we sorry. can't have nice things here. We're not yeah. allowed nice things. No, we just live vicariously through other states. Well, let's go, Brandon. And yes, I definitely agree that- Oh, by Joe the way, all the signs disappeared on the lawns because uh, of the fact that Brandon was running for mayor. So we are all very happy here that all the right-wingers had to put their let's go, Brandon signs away. Oh, uh, that's too bad. Well, they'll, get, they'll have to get over it once it's all said and done. I definitely oh, agree. Brandon. Pritzker will run, as will Newsom, if uh, Joe does not run. Um, but it'll be a free-for-all. There'll be a lot of people that get in there. But yeah, I could definitely see a case where in a year like 24, uh, where Pritzker um, could be somewhat of a dark horse because Bernie's not going to run and he does have some things to run on. And running from Illinois, you know, Reagan's home state, you know, the Midwest, there is something to be said for, uh, you know, obviously Obama was from Illinois, um, you know, how that would play uh, differently than, you know, the left coast, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for the diversion. And just to be clear, I'm not saying I'm a Pritzker supporter. I'm just laying out politics. Yeah, no. Hey, we're, we're looking for all options because right now it's looking, put it this it's way. not going anywhere concerned, for them. If anybody that has political chops or might potentially do something that's good out of all the people that will run from Mayo Pete, uh, Klobuchar, uh, Kamala, duh. Newsom, no, no, no. Uh, probably Warren again is insufferable as that may seem. Uh, um there's no question that Pritzker would have the best shot at potentially catching lightning in a bottle because he does have some decent political chops. I, like I said, I was there and I can, I, I do have a good sense of when a person's got political acumen or not, and he's definitely got it. So you got to give him that. And again, as I said, when you got all the money in the world, you can convince a lot of people that you're the one for the job because people have their freaking hands out. How can people find your work? How can they get involved if they want to continue to follow? Obviously, we are always grateful to have you on. And of course, the book is Guilty of Journalism, the political case against Julian Assange. And no, you're not seeing meta, guys. You're seeing two separate copies of the book. We are huge supporters of Julian Assange. By Mine the way, has copious notes. You guys know. <laughs> By the way, before you go, uh, we will be in D.C. Uh, May 2nd, 3rd, and 4th for the... Uh, it's uh, International Press Freedom Day. I know that there's a rally being planned. Um, and I, I, you know, I've been saying that this is like, I think, not, I'm not saying it's like the last possible opportunity to help, but I see it as a very big opportunity at a moment when it's possible. Like, I, I just yeah. think that this is the first time that there's an opportunity where I think things are getting to where it's possible. Um, so we're going to be there. Um, are you are you planning on being there? Well, I had uh, known about this gathering, but I think I might have to be there. So let well, me. it's it's being done by the by the Assange Defense. Uh, what's the name of the you know the organization? Yeah, you know, sometimes we communicate with each other, sometimes we don't. So it's organizing, right? It's uh, organizing, but so consider this the thing. And I've spoken to a lot of people that are planning on going. I think it's potentially a really good opportunity. Well, look, I haven't been to D.C. yet with my book. I'm working on getting uh -huh. a Busboys and Poets event scheduled so that I can have a discussion and share it with people in D.C. I didn't have that opportunity yet, uh, but... If people well, if want, you do that on the evening of the second or the third, then would, I'll be there. Would make I'll a good sign. Yeah, it would make a great event. So, uh, if people want the book that we are all flashing and waving here, you can go to <laughs> sevenstories.com is a good place to go. You can also go to censoredpress.org. Um, I'll give a shout just quickly because I know we're winding down, but I, they really need credit. 
Project Censored started their own publishing print, their own print. Uh, it's called Censored Press. And this group, Project Censored, has been doing work for at least 25 years, I believe. And I've got great friends there. And they do this incredible work. I mean, way before we were even talking about disinformation and how the media has propaganda and all kinds of stuff, they've been doing media literacy work and they document the top 25 censored stories every year. And they're really good people who care about the media and what gets churned out on a daily basis. And they were so gracious to me and open to my ideas and flexible and taught me how this all worked. And I was really proud to be able to do this book with them. So that's, that's my book. Really cool. My works at the dissenter.org. If you want to know the latest on Julian Assange and everything in between, you can find it there. And if I could just say one thing quickly, I just, yeah. I'll leave people this, that uh, we expect that there might be, I, I'm, I'm thinking that it's soonish, very soonish that we'll have a ruling from the appeals court in the UK about when uh, Julian Assange will or won't get to bring his appeal of the extradition decision, which is something important. We've been looking for that. I don't know why it took so long. It's horrid because he submitted his appeal in the summer of last year and he's had to wait like nine months in prison, in prison, and the justice system has not moved with any urgency. But that just tells you some more about the case. And we've had our conversation. It's time to end, but people should be looking for the news that'll be coming about the next phase of, of, of him fighting this extradition. Absolutely. Kevin Gostola. Thank you so much. Thanks as always. always. Guys, the book is guilty of journalism, the political case against Julian Assange. It's important. Let me tell you. And and not to fangirl, but Abby Martin wrote the foreword, which is kind of cool. I mean, come on. The yeah. artwork. The Am pictures, I allowed to fangirl over Abby? No, you can. She's amazing. And she okay. did this while doing Empire Files. She's working on a fantastic movie, Earth's Greatest Enemy. And she yeah. also, no, she also awesome was having a, she also was having a second, she was having a second kid too at the same time. She was, she was, she's being a mom and doing all kinds of other badass stuff. Oh, look, it's much easier to be yeah. a guy. That's all I can say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that said, Kev, Thank thanks you, as always. Good Thank luck. You. Let's go, Brandon, and we will be in touch. Yeah, all right, bye. Take care, man. So, this is quite good. And also, by the way, I didn't get into it, but in the appendix, there's this huge appendix. And um, why, is Christi- why is this coming up like that? Oh, because they were sitting here. They were sitting here when they did the show. And so they changed it. You got to just figure out how to change it. Um, so yeah, we're not Christina and Sam guys. Um, but so in this book, if I may, there's an appendix that has 30 WikiLeaks files that the U S government doesn't want you to read. And he highlights them and it's really interesting. And by the way, this book is also extremely well annotated. Um, and that's something that, you know, real journalists do. Uh, and and I just think that people are just sitting there with talking points about something that is actually very complex and nuanced and don't know anything about it. And I've been saying this for, I feel like, 15 years. It's probably not that long. But the prosecution of Julian Assange represents the end of the First Amendment. That's what that is. That's the end. <clears throat> if, 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 if Julian Assange is extradited and he is actually tried here, according to our laws, when he is not a U.S. citizen has never been here as a citizen. And we try him, according to our laws, for printing the truth. Honestly, this has just been pathetic from the very beginning. This is this is Debbie Wasserman Schultz at the Democratic convention before she was canned saying this is Russia's fault. And 
don't read what's in the information or Hillary Clinton, who's now going to be a professor at Columbia University. We'll be talking about that on Wednesday with due dissonance. Oh, that's the thing. The video. You have to, you guys. Oh, oh my God. It's it's brutal. She's running again. And she is somebody who's on record as saying, couldn't we just drone bomb Julian Assange? We came. We saw, we killed him. He died. Died. (laughs) Oh my God. And that's the, and that's the psychopath that they're going to be having. Hillary Clinton will be teaching a new, a new course at Columbia University on foreign policy. That's true. Let's create the next generation of psychopaths. So Due Dissonance will be on our podcast on Wednesday, another crossover with our good friends from New York City. I like Keaton and Russell. Yeah. They're, they're a no nonsense group. And they're the most, I think like that I see consistently, um, uh, with the same takes that I have, they're consistently yeah, like. I mean, obviously, they're, they're rubbing elbows with some people we don't necessarily. I don't have. Like, no, that doesn't mean matter. I, no, no, you got to You got to do what you got to do. And why you don't know. you talk about where I took you yesterday? Um, where did I take you yesterday? I invited you to a luncheon. Yes. Uh, well, we could talk about that, but this is more important. Is and, it? Well, you, we mentioned it at the top oh, where okay. we were yesterday. But yes, we went to. Uh, we went to the League of Women Voters luncheon here. It's the in annual Plantation. spring luncheon. And it's the first one back since COVID. It's a very nice event, uh, and it's always interesting when you're sitting amongst you know women of what I would consider be the Debbie voter age demographic. I love me my League ladies. I though. think that there's a very interesting. Uh, the table that we sat at had about eight people sitting there, and what you find very interesting is that one of the people who was there, who and again th- these are women who are all over sixty five. So it, it becomes very crystal clear. I think I like it because I feel so young when I'm at the In terms when you're looking at like how they vote and what their thoughts are. So there were three women in particular. Uh, <laughs> one is a fourth, but it's a friend of Jen's who is definitely more on the side of uh, she's more or less going to support what Jen is going to do. Uh, but the three in particular that stood out were one who was very much on board with what we're doing, very much not for Debbie and very much would, you know, support our efforts like we're doing here. Another person, your friend from Jersey, another person who is, you know, kind of hit or miss in terms of like where she would stand on policy, but is probably much more agreeable to the idea of not having somebody like Debbie represent them. And then the final person is somebody who was an outright Debbie supporter. And what you can tell about the outright Debbie supporter in particular is how angry they get when you try to burst their bubble, when you try to introduce information that they're just not accustomed to listening to. And so that's very much like the person who listens to MSNBC and CNN who thinks that Julian Assange isn't really a journalist. We must prosecute this man because what he's done is hurt this country. Like that's how that's what it becomes. When, and, but and what's interesting is so but like I think of people like Debbie and the idea of them questioning people like Matt or Julian, anything having to do with their ethics. And I think them saying that he's not a journalist, I feel like saying you're not a public servant. <laughs> so, you know, we're even the other the other thing that was very telling. And this is something that I heard constantly from. And again, Debbie has a very specific type of voter. Um, they're typically obviously uh, considerably older, usually over 65, much like Hillary. That's where the demo for Joe Biden, that's where the demo falls. We've, um, I figured consi- out why. It's pretty consistent. Uh, levels of comfort, uh, not having children or children of a certain age that are ready for change. Yeah, uh, I've seen the effects of what the economy has done over the last 40 years. And so in their case, um, something that I heard very consistently, especially from older women that have voted for Debbie, probably as long as she's been in politics, is this idea of, 
You know, I remember when Debbie ran for the state house and went and knocked on every door, which again is only a few thousand doors. That's but, the other thing. Know, yeah, let's talk but about that's, that. You know, again, she that's hasn't done job. that for her congressional doesn't district. Doesn't matter. That's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. And what I pointed out to this person, and I didn't do it in a rude way, I just made it very clear that the Debbie Wasserman Schultz of 1992 is not the Debbie Wasserman Schultz of 2020. No, this one's way wealthier. And the idea that you have to try to explain to them that you should not be living that far in the past in terms of your reflections of the person who's been representing you for so long. First of all, I don't know anybody who would actually want somebody to represent them for over 30 years. That to me is actually pretty disturbing because I know I would never want somebody in that, in office, especially at that level for so long, no. and especially being in Congress for that long. And just pointing out something as simple as Debbie has voted against universal health care every single term that she's been in Congress, that was something that this particular person did not didn't exactly know how to take. It's not pleasant. And especially when you look at the amount of time she plays the breast cancer survivor card, when you play the breast cancer survivor card and you one, don't think anybody else is entitled to the same healthcare you get. And two, take hand over fist money from the alcohol industry, which is a contributor to breast do cancer. do a really great job of protecting the message that is to go out there because believe it or not, a lot of people locally are really insulated from the outside world regarding Debbie and what she does. You know, they don't know these things. And as far as they're concerned, because of the way it was probably portrayed, because I sure as hell was not going to waste my time on CNN and MSNBC regarding Debbie dealing with Matt Taibbi. There are a number of those people that have supported her, especially of that age, that are looking at Debbie and thinking, oh, wow, she did a great job. That's no, my, she Debbie. Really handed that's him. my Debbie. She really you handed know? him his ass. So that's more or less what we have to deal with. And now we're dealing with an even more significant issue, which, of course, is TikTok, which when you think about the protection, you know, when you think about your Fourth Amendment rights, that translates into the digital arm. Right to, the, the, to prevent the right of search and seizure, you do not have those rights like you think you do anymore. You haven't and, in a long time, though. And TikTok is particularly egregious because, yes, the, the Chinese Communist Party uh, data mines our information. That is what TikTok does. Now, of course, we're not using TikTok for those purposes, you know, we're using it for our stories, for what we're trying to cover to get people to but watch But why would show. anybody be surprised that a private company, a private entity is mining the information that you're voluntarily giving them for a non-necessary service and non-essential service? Like, I don't understand how people can get bent out of shape about that. The supermarkets collect your data when you pay and check out. Why would anybody think that they have an expectation of privacy on a public platform that's privately owned for profit. Because China's interests are not our interests, especially regarding our economy. You know, we have several problems in this nation regarding, we how, we regarding how we handle uh, workers. You know, we have a, an economy that is bad, but we're not communists. We do not have a slave labor corps that basically gets paid pennies on the dollar every day. We We've do that. outsourced our jobs to this country. No, listen, we get pay, workers get paid very poorly. No, I'm talking country. about our prison industrial complex. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's, that's a lot of people. It's a two million if you uh, say workforce. That, if of you want to say that the free workforce of China is more or less the same as the prison workforce of America, I would agree with you. I would have to go visit there. I haven't seen it and I don't know that. So I'm not commenting on the conditions of China. For the people that work in sweatshops that are making our iPhones, that are making our sneakers, that are making our clothes, everything that's been outsourced, steel, wood, vinyl flooring, all everything you could think of has been, out, because of NAFTA and normal trade relations with China, 
Yeah, I did that. But how you can know. we criticize them when we have like child migrant workers that are here's being, a great one that, that are in our here's a great one that now. Double K is pointing out. China owns the largest pork producers. So basically, you know, if you go to the super, uh, if you I go to the supermarket, the and no, I don't need it either. But if you, but a lot of people do, and so when you go to the supermarket and people take a look at that information and they see that the meat, especially low quality meat, is being produced in China in all of Southeast Asia. That's where it's being produced. And why? Because they're slaves and that's how they're treated. So in our country, we justify having these fancy toys because it's okay if we exploit people in other nations. But again, I still think we exploit our people here. I don't think I we justify I absolutely agree it. that we do, there but it's children. a lot easier to hide it when you're doing it over there. Well, yes. And they even hide it significantly because when... Uh, Apple originally was having all sorts of issues with their how they treated their eye slaves over there a long time ago. They then moved their location way further inland into China where it would be less seen, less visible. You wouldn't get tourists. You wouldn't get. So it has been purposefully moved out of view so that they can continue to basically violate people. Notary. We are not uninformed about China. That's not to say that there aren't things that China has that we don't have. Oh, good God, For no. example, China has an exceptional, maybe the best in the whole world, high-speed rail system. They have completely utilized the South China Sea for the purpose of endless solar fields. Absolutely, Although, double course, K. That Absolutely. could be an argument. Has taken more people out of poverty. Uh, uh, and why have they done that? Because the industrialization of China at our expense has been done at an, at an unbelievable level on top of the fact that they do have universal health care, that they do have universal education, that they do value you know, uh, the collective in a way that the United States does not. Uh, yeah, that's good. I don't know if it'll work. No, it won't. But just don't worry about it. Keep going. I don't know why you're doing that. What I, does it matter? Do what because you're doing. I want, well, because there's something I would rather okay. have up there. That's all. Well, no, I was going to get rid of that. That's what yeah, I was Yeah, well, it should on. say generational change, but we'll figure that after the fact. Well, that's what I was trying to yeah, do. Any, let's not get distracted, please. So my point being is that, yes, like any nation, especially an industrialized nation, there are going to be good parts and bad parts. But there is no question that when it comes to actual geopolitics, you know, we get so caught up with what's going on, for example, in Russia, which is insane. But what's going on in China is not a joke. And so we're going to play a quick clip uh, that took place today on Capitol Hill with the CEO of TikTok. And here's what they had to say. It'll be very interesting. And share your thoughts on that. Is TikTok really about to be banned in the U.S.? The Biden administration wants TikTok's Chinese owners to sell their stakes in the app or risk facing a ban on the social platform in the U.S. But why? It's mainly because of concerns about national security. Some lawmakers fear that because TikTok's Chinese parent company ByteDance is linked to the Chinese Communist Party, TikTok could allow the Chinese government to get its hands on U.S. users' data, which is just spying. U.S. officials have also suggested the app's algorithm could be used to push Chinese influence operations to an American audience. The Restrict Act, aka the Restricting the Emergence of Security Threats that Risk Information and Communications Technology Act, is a proposed bipartisan bill 
bill that would allow for a nationwide TikTok ban. It isn't only aimed at TikTok, rather it's a broader bill that would increase the U.S. government's power to restrict or ban any foreign-linked producers of electronics or software that could pose a national security risk. At a hearing with the House Energy and Commerce Committee, TikTok CEO Shouzi Chu said that the risk of the Chinese government accessing TikTok users' data is a hypothetical and theoretical scenario. For the approximately 150 million monthly U.S. TikTok users, a ban could be bad news for several reasons, which has led many to fight back. The online protest organization Fight for the Future launched its hashtag Don't Ban TikTok campaign back in February 2023. That hashtag currently has more than 94 million views on the app, with dozens of large creators voicing their opposition to a ban. Supporters of the campaign say that removing TikTok would have a negative impact on the millions of Americans who use the app for news, small business, community organizing, and free expression. In a letter, organizations including PEN America, the ACLU, Fight for the Future, and more said that a ban on TikTok in the U.S. would violate Americans' First Amendment rights, set a dangerous precedent, and undermine U.S. credibility as a defender of digital freedom. And if a platform that's so popular with the youth gets banned, it could lead to younger generations feeling apathy, anger, and disappointment toward the federal government, making them less inclined to engage with politics. In other words, banning TikTok might come with a political cost, especially ahead of the 2024 presidential election. Recordings just got better. So there you have it. Uh, and again, we're not Christina and Sam, but, you know, we're just just Jen and Peter. So when somebody mentions China and why I think China uh, has a lot of issues, especially on a, on a geopolitical level, uh, my biggest issue is the fact that they have a government structure that basically, if you think censorship is bad in the United States, you can't say anything negative about the CCP. And I know about this specifically when it comes to the NBA. Uh, there are many instances where people have been critical of the Chinese government. And what do they do? They just threaten to pull business. I mean, you can't be critical in any way whatsoever. So do I think that an, a ban is necessary? I wouldn't say that that's the leap that I would take, but I definitely think if we're going to you know, have something, you know, it would probably make sense to have some type of regulation. I don't know. What do you think? I don't. I don't really know the whole thing about it, but I don't appreciate anything that seems like it's red scare, China scare, China hypothetically looking at our data as if we're not doing it. Like this stuff is all nonsense. I don't honestly, I don't care. That's how I feel. I don't care. You put your information out there on a, on a public platform you, you should not have to, you don't get to assume privacy. Sorry, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you have privacy if you're putting something on a public platform? And yes, private companies will take that information and use it to their advantage. They've been doing that for years. So are you going to stop shopping everywhere? I mean, well, like I just, I, I, I find all of this to be just silly. Well, uh, ultimately what they're trying to do is get them to sell their platform to an American company. What else is new? That'll be for hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, will it happen? Who the hell knows? Uh, but it is going to be interesting because this is becoming a very hot button topic. And it looks like, and, and again, the reason this becomes a story is because evidently President Biden does want TikTok banned. And so do several other very conservative Democrats. And obviously the GOP is on board with that. So we'll see yes, what happens. They're, they're, the, this is fascism. I love when everybody points out like as if Donald Trump is like the fascist or Ron DeSantis is the fascist. All of these things that are censoring our information and our access to information is so scarily authoritarian that I don't know how anybody could be worried about anything else, honestly. Like is, this is a really big deal. Like much, it is a dog and pony show. 
If you do like our content and are so inclined, please go to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You can become a supporter of our show. And you, of course, get the Lulu sticker. Of course, if you are feeling a little bit more uh, supportive, $10 a month will get you the Mansion Parliamentarian sticker. And if you are a very, very generous contributor of $25 a month, you get the Generational Change jersey, tri-blend, silky smooth, soft. You know you want one. Hopefully, you will consider becoming a member. And if you are not so inclined to putting your information on the grid, please go to dollar sign gen change at I'm having a brain fart. Cash app? Cash app. Dollar sign gen change? Yes. I remember that part. Blanked on the cash app for a second. So if you guys are so inclined, obviously we would love to have your support. Ah, that sticker is cute. That's a start. You might want to think about it, Notary. You know you'd love to be a supporter of our show. You've been here for a little while. You're digging our content. It can't be that bad. So please consider. Uh, what do we have coming up on Wednesday? I don't know. Oh, do dissidents guys are going to be here. Well, they're not going to be here, but they'll be in the virtual here. Yes. It'll be a fun conversation. Uh, so we will be doing a crossover podcast with the guys from Do Dissonance, Keaton and Russell. Uh, next Monday, we are booked up with Congressional Representative Jasmine Crockett. And that is where we're at for now. We're going to have to schedule some additional stuff. Uh, we're working on it. We are. We are working on it. And obviously, we are extremely grateful that you guys are here. Remember to subscribe, hit the like button, share, do all those wonderful things. We are obviously very grateful to have each and every one of you here. Uh, some new faces, some familiar faces. Double K, Off Rail, Mario, obviously Notary, good to see you. Uh, again, we're trying to do what we can. And if you can, remember to get the book, Guilty of Journalism, uh, or uh, yes, uh, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange, which of course- And in, in all seriousness, Kevin Gastola is like the- premier journalist on all things Julian Assange. Nobody, nobody has covered it to the extent and for the duration that he has covered it and has made it a priority. Nobody. So that's why it's like, it's definitely his area of expertise. So if you want to know about what the case is really about, not the talking points, not the mainstream media narrative, which is a bunch of bullshit, but the actual story, this is a good way to know. And he breaks it down into like easy. It's kind of like Julian Assange for dummies. You guys know I like things broken down kind of basic. But um, yeah, and he also does talk about other whistleblowers in here as well. Because there's the whole part about John Kiriakou. We should have him come on again. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he is. So thanks, guys. Really appreciate you all. We'll see you Wednesday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.